This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. In September 1958, Bank of America decided to try an experiment, one that would have far-reaching effects on our lives and on the economy. They decided, after careful consideration, to conduct this experiment in Fresno, California. The thinking was, no one was paying much attention to Fresno, so if the plan failed, it wouldn't get a lot of media attention. Things were slow back then here. Uh, Fresno was not the big metropolitan area it is today. That's Joseph Rusak. My name is Joseph Rusak. I've worked with Bank of America since 1956 and retired in 1985. Started off as a teller and worked our way up, as most of us young fellows did. Joseph was there when all this went down. And so, in September of 1958, Bank of America sent out 60,000 pieces of mail to people in Fresno. Inside was a little plastic object that has become in equal parts emblematic of opportunity, convenience, and debt. He's talking about the credit card. That's reporter Nate Berg here to tell you what I'm talking about. Bank of America had recruited about 300 merchants in Fresno to accept this new payment system. And they'd asked employees like Joseph to hand credit cards out to people they knew. We did. We passed around to our friends and, you know, the neighbors. That's about it. But as for Joseph, he was skeptical about using a credit card himself. To be honest with you, I don't remember if I took a card ride better or not, or, or if I waited a couple of years. <laughs> but uh, because as a banker, I didn't really believe in credit myself. <laughs> Why not? Well, you have to pay back interest, and I don't like giving money away. <laughs> Joseph wasn't alone. The whole town of Fresno was a bit nervous about this new credit card system. The concept of credit wasn't new, but it had never been done quite like this. Going back into, say, the 1800s, early 1900s, if you had credit with a store or some kind of a business, it was just kind of a ledger book type of thing. This is Ken Hallenbeck. He's a numismatist. A numismatist. That is, someone who studies or collects currency. Not just coins, but it's paper money, metals, tokens, uh, anything that's a money or a money substitute. Ken is retired now, but he used to work at the American Numismatic Association. Numismatic. So back in the late 1800s, every place from the corner bar to the local pharmacy allowed patrons to keep open tabs. They'd record everything in a ledger book and allow their customers to charge up a bill that they'd typically pay back at the end of the month. For businesses, this was an accounting nightmare. Stores could have hundreds of accounts billing tabs for a dollar here and a dollar there, and with each charge, a shopkeeper would have to haul out a ledger book and look up a customer's records just to complete a transaction. Eventually, store owners cut down on some of the paperwork by assigning customers' account numbers which they would inscribe on little tokens. Most of them were round or oval, a hole in them, and they had a number on them, and that was your account number. Ken has a collection of a few dozen of these old credit tokens, many dating back to the early 20th century. I have one here. It's, uh, it says Pocahontas Pioneer Garage, but it has a head of an Indian on it, and, and on the back it has a number 839. After credit tokens came something called charger plates. They looked like little dog tags for the army. They were metal and had your name and information imprinted on them. Shopkeepers could make an impression of your personal information directly onto the bill instead of having to write it all down. 
But the more accounts you had, the more charge of plates and tokens you had to carry around with you. It still wasn't a great system for the retailer or the customer. So in 1949, a New York businessman named Frank X. McNamara came up with an idea for a single charge card that could be accepted at multiple establishments. He called it the Diner's Club card, and with it, you could make charges at a number of New York restaurants and hotels. But unlike the credit card of today, you could only use your Diner's Club card in certain places. The idea caught on somewhat. About 20,000 people signed up, mostly businessmen. It wasn't a smash success, but still, the banks started to see an opportunity. So you have this giant change taking place uh, right around World War II, and especially in the aftermath of World War II, when the American economy was the basically the only economy in the world that was still standing. That's Joe Nocera, columnist for the New York Times and author of A Piece of the Action, How the Middle Class Joined the Money Class. People... Uh, having gotten through the war, settling down, um, you know, getting married, raising kids, wanting to live in the suburbs, there were suddenly things they wanted to buy. Um, A refrigerator, for example, or as it came into vogue, a television. So maybe you'd have a Sears account. You could buy things there and pay your bill at the end of the month. But if you didn't have an account with a store, you'd have to go to a bank and get a traditional loan for any relatively large purchase. Whether it was a car, whether it was a sofa, um, whether it was a refrigerator, you'd go to the bank every single time. Every single time, you know, you had to, you know, have collateral to pay for it. Every single time, the banker would have to figure out whether you were a good credit risk. Uh, it It was a pretty cumbersome process, both for the consumer and for the bank. Bank of America wanted to find an easier way to make these small loans. Bank of America was, in the 1950s, the premier consumer-oriented bank in the United States. Bank of America really believed in the idea that it would grow by helping consumers. So it was Bank of America that decided that they would basically give clients a card that they could put in their pockets that would give them roughly a $500 line of credit. Unlike the Diners Club, Bank of America wanted their customers to be able to use their card anywhere, not just at restaurants. And where the Diners Club had to be paid off within 60 days, Bank of America would allow its customers to pay them back whenever they wanted. They'd call their new credit card the Bank AmeriCard. You could spend it all down, you could pay part of it back, you could pay it all back. You didn't have to get a banker to approve your purchase, and you didn't have to pay the bank back by any specific time. They called this revolving credit. The card was essentially an instant loan. Of course, it was a loan with an interest rate attached. This was one of the profound shifts in the way people handle money. Instead of the banker being in control of your money, uh, of setting the terms for how you dealt with your money, with a credit card, you were the one setting the terms, and you were the one making the decisions about what to do with your money. Now all Bank of America had to do was convince retailers to accept credit cards as payment and convince people to use them. Now, because they were a new invention and because people didn't really know what they were and because there were no laws surrounding credit cards, the way they tested the card was they simply sent a mailing to basically every Bank of America customer in Fresno, California. Which brings us back to Fresno. They called it the Fresno Drop. 
Bank of America mailed out 60,000 credit cards all over the city. Fresno had become a laboratory for the future of personal finance. The Fresno drop was supposed to be a controlled experiment where the bank could test the concept and work out any kinks. But within just a few months of the Fresno credit card drop, Bank of America got word that one of its competitors in California was planning a similar program. So Bank of America quickly expanded. Mass mailings went out in the Central Valley cities of Modesto and Bakersfield, and then eventually to the state's bigger cities of Sacramento, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. Within 10 months of the Fresno drop, more than a million Bank America cards had been mailed out across California. Once the cards had begun saturating the bigger cities, fraud and theft were rampant. People would go around to uh, mailboxes in the suburbs and steal cards out of, on, on days when they knew the cards were being dropped. The system was being abused, but the system was also randomly mailing out pre-approved credit cards that allowed anyone to buy up to $500 of whatever they wanted. You know, dead people were getting cards, dogs were getting cards. Um, it was just very, very willy-nilly. Despite these mass mailings, the cards didn't catch on right away. It was hard to convince stores to accept them. They had to pay a percentage of the sale to the bank. And it was hard to get customers to use them. And when people did start using the cards, they didn't always pay the money back, which was a bit of a surprise to Bank of America. People had mostly been pretty good about paying back traditional loans. And what they forgot was, in those days, when you made a loan, the customer looked the banker in the eye, and the banker looked the customer in the eye, and they both had this kind of relationship. And the customer would not want to let the banker down. Whereas with a credit card, it was an anonymous thing. And this anonymity meant one in four people weren't paying their credit card debts. In 1959, about a year after Bank of America did their first mass mailing in Fresno, they had mailed out more than two million Bank of America cards. But they hadn't made a single cent from their experiment. In fact, they lost about $20 million. And so the bank started making a few changes. They really started to think about it differently. Bank of America set up a collections department and an anti-fraud unit. People who weren't paying their bills had their cards revoked. And the government also started to regulate the credit card industry. In 1968, the Truth in Lending Act made it illegal to mail out credit cards to people who never asked for one. From that point onward, instead of getting a card in the, in the mail, you got instead a solicitation to apply for a card, uh, which in one form or another exists to this day. It wasn't until 1961, three years after the Fresno drop, that Bank of America actually turned a profit on their crazy credit card experiment. By 1968, they were making about $13 million a year. The Bank of America system, which became a nationwide system, eventually became known as Visa. Um, and the other cards that had competed with Bank of America, they also consolidated and they became MasterCard. The major credit card companies now make lots and lots and lots of money every year, which is great for them. Maybe not so great for the rest of us. Today, over 70% of American adults have at least one credit card, and the U.S. as a whole has about $900 billion in credit card debt. In 2009, more credit card reform was passed. It prevents arbitrary interest hikes, stops credit card companies from specifically marketing to college kids, prohibits certain types of abusive fees. But a lot of people think more reform is needed. The experiment in Fresno created a tool that made buying things much, much easier. 
You no longer had to put on a suit and a tie and go to the bank for a loan every time you wanted to get yourself something nice. The credit card facilitated an unprecedented amount of economic freedom for the middle class, and that aspect was intentional and maybe even noble. But it's important to keep in mind that first and foremost, the credit card was designed to make money for banks, and everything about their design betrays that primary objective. Credit cards don't have to be complicated. They don't have to trick you, but they do, because they were designed that way. My bills are all due, and the babies need shoes, but I'm busted. Cotton is down to a quarter a pound, and I'm busted. I got a cow that went dry, and a hen that won't lay. A big stack of bills that get bigger each day. The county will haul my belongings away. I'm busted. 99% Invisible was produced this week by Nate Berg with Katie Mingle, Avery Truffleman, Sam Greenspan, Kurt Colstead, and me, Roman Mars. The new kids at 99PI starting today are Delaney Hall and Sharif Youssef. We are Project 91.7 KALW San Francisco and produced out of the offices of ArcSign, an architecture and interiors firm in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. We often don't think of winter as a time of growth or creation, but if you think about it, it's the perfect time to create your own website because you're cooped up, you're thinking about being productive, and now Squarespace can help you do it. With Squarespace, you can take your cool ideas, your creative content, your services and goods, and you can turn them into a beautiful website in just a few clicks. This is because their easy-to-use templates are created by world-class designers, and then you have the ability to customize the look and feel and the different settings for your own needs. For example, my site, romanmars.com, I made with Squarespace. The landing page features a close-up of me talking to a microphone, so it has my, you know, my very handsome beard. But if I should ever shave it, I don't have to wait for my web guy to change the photo. I can do it myself, and maybe the next photo will feature my soulful eyes. On one of the pages, I've also picked out some of my favorite episodes of 99% Invisible to share, and the audio is conveniently embedded, even on mobile. Try it yourself. Go to squarespace.com invisible for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code invisible to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. You can find this show and like the show on Facebook. We're all on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and Spotify, and we are fascinating on every platform. But the easiest way to get more information on every single episode of 99% Invisible is at 99pi.org. Radiotopia. From PR.